Acts chapter 14, if you would. Acts 14, verse 1. So we're going to pick back up. We're going to just continue right on in our study in Acts. Lord willing, today we'll get through uh, the first, say, 20 verses, 19 or 20 verses uh, of the book of Acts chapter 14. Uh, and Paul and Barnabas, uh, really, this chapter is, is kind of more of the same, uh, a little bit from what we studied in chapter 13, especially as Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, this is more of the same, but something happens in Lystra that is, that is a little, not, not a little bit unique, a lot unique. And uh, so we'll look at that as well. So uh, let's pray, and then uh, we'll begin reading in verse number 1 and just kind of walk through these, uh, this, this passage here. Our Father, thank You once again for Your grace and help. Thank You for uh, stirring up Your people's hearts to be here, to desire to hear the Word of God, to fellowship with one another. And I pray that You would just, Lord, fill their cup, Lord, and uh, give them just exactly what they need. Lord, this is not a work of man. You know, Lord, I have no power or wisdom or ability to help your people. But Lord, I trust you. I ask you that your word would help your people, that you would help them through what you have given to us in the scripture. As we look at these things, Lord, you know how to speak to people's hearts where they're at. And I especially, once again, just ask for a special grace for Eric and for Eric's family um, with, uh, with his dad going to heaven. Lord, please comfort them and give them grace and sustain them and hold them up in this time. So bless our time together as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Bible says in verse number one, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together. Interesting, it just occurred to me as I, re as I was reading this, the news from Eric's dad, uh, that we're reading about what happened in central Turkey. This, what we're reading is central Turkey. Iconium, Antioch and Pisidia, Lystra, Derby, uh, Lycaonia, these are all places that in what is modern modern day Turkey. So there's a little uh, coincidence there. So they went both into together into the synagogue of the Jews. Of course, that's the the standard kind of the SOP of the um, of the the apostles Barnabas and Paul, and uh, so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. Now, as I read that verse, and, and I'll, I'll touch on this in, in, in more, a lot more detail tonight, that's one thing that's really, that really, I, I felt like as I was doing the year in review, and I was asking Sister Karen and uh, Sister Amy and my wife about different events that have happened, trying to make sure I cover everything, and I, I'm I'm liable to make a mistake about the days things happen and stuff, but I've tried to I tried to look back at records and see you know what what all had happened in the church over the past year, and there have been significant things that have happened. But the Lord really seemed to remind me of something as I was going through that and trying to uh, intentionally remember the things that have happened. And in verse number one, is they preached in such a way that people believe the gospel. And you know, as we went out yesterday and. We, we had a little, a little time before we went out and we tried to talk about what's the best way to, to get the gospel and, and be able to engage with people so that you know, they don't just look for an out and, and try to get, get them to engage with us further so that we can have an opportunity. And the Lord really answered in that. And please continue to pray for, especially for Carlos and for, uh, 
uh, help me, Ari, uh, Tyrone, that's right, uh, that, you know, nothing would, uh, no, no devilish bird will come take the seed away from their heart and uh, they would continue to be open to hearing the gospel because it really, it comes down to this. It comes down to the Word of God. That's what they have to hear. That's what we heard that, that uh, led us to believe in Christ. And so they're preaching the Word of God. Verse number two, And the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Hmm. Evil affected against the brethren. So basically, because of what the Jews had done, the church, these little fledgling infant churches, not just here, but in Antioch and Pisidia, and later on in Lystra, all of a sudden had a bad name. You know, in in the way we live, and and again, we'll see more of this as we go on, but in, in the place in which we live, especially in Greenville, it is considered a, you know, if you're running for a political office, you want to be a Christian, right? I mean, if you're a, you know, sinner or right, you want to be a Christian. You definitely want to be, air quote, Christian. You definitely don't want to be known as, you know, a Satan worshiper or, you know, whatever. You don't want to be that. Because in our society, to be a Christian is considered a, you know, a kind of a, kind of one of those necessary things. You know, if you're not a Christian of some kind, then you're kind of weird. Kind of weird. I know growing up in school, you would, we'd, We'd have people maybe that were came from other countries, and they, you know, they were whatever religion from the country from which they came, and and uh, you know they were kind of unusual. You know, it just wasn't real common. But that's not the way this is here. <laughs> Rather, the reverse: the Christians are not the is not the common belief system. And I just wonder how would we fare? How would you, as a believer, as a child of God, fare if being a child of God was not was not considered a good thing, but detrimental to your honor and respectability in society. How would I fare in that kind of situation? This is exactly what these people were faced with. You know, and, and that, directly affects, that directly affects how open people are to the gospel. People think through this. If I become a Christian, if I open my heart to this, what will be the effect? How will it affect my business? How will it affect my family? How will it, how will it affect my, my, my situation at my workplace? People think through these things. People really do. Verse number three, the Bible says, Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. Just because there is contention does not necessarily mean that we need to be quiet. Just because, you know, we were talking about it yesterday as we went out, how that, you know, sometimes you say things, and, and I think they had an, an instance where they were talking to a fellow. They didn't say anything out of the way. I think it was Brother Ari and Brother Ben talking to him. And they said everything right, and yet the man was upset with them. You know, well, oh, man, you must have did something wrong. No, they didn't do anything wrong. It's just that that's the way sometimes people respond when you give them the truth for just plain, honest, humble uh, uh, offer of the truth. But that doesn't mean we ought to just in other words, we can't always judge whether or not we're doing it right based upon people's reaction. Now, there is a, a balance to that. I mean, you can be, we can be offensive and not pay attention to those kinds of things, but we can't always judge just, just based upon people's response because there's a lot of reasons that people respond negatively to the gospel. It's not just about the, what you're saying. It could be that they knew someone who was a hypocritical 
professing Christian. You're, it could be that their parents were that way. It could be that they got hurt in a church. It could be that, you know, whatever. It could be a lot of things. It's just simple obedience to what God says. Take it to God. And what, we, what you usually will find is that when people eventually come to the Lord, it's because over a long period of time, their heart changes toward the gospel. What was once offensive to them becomes attractive to them. You know why? Because God is working in their heart. God is working in their heart. This is not a work of man. This is why we pray. This is a work of God. Verse 3. It says, Which gave testimony unto the word of His grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, we, we've already studied that, so I won't, I won't stay here long, but the Lord did miraculous things through Paul and Barnabas that confirmed the word. Again, that was not; those signs and wonders were not the main thing. The gospel was the main thing. But the Lord gave them these, these additional things to confirm the word. Verse 4, But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. Now, while you're here in verse 4, just as a side note, look at verse 14. It says, Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people. Notice that. In verse 4 and verse number 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. An apostle. Now, Barnabas wasn't one of the twelve apostles chosen by Christ, but he, he and, and Paul were certainly apostles of the church at Antioch in Syria. In other words, they were missionaries. This is what I think is the biblical term for a missionary. One who is sent by the church to preach the gospel. That's what I think you see here because Barnabas has called it just as well as Paul is. But look, look back at verse number 4. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. So you see, whatever they're doing, people have believed the gospel. The whole city is affected. Now, understand, when we talk about city, in this case, we're not talking about a huge, a huge expanse like something like Atlanta or New York or anything like that. But this is a place where you could walk everywhere within the city. You know, you could, you could spend a half hour and you could walk to everywhere in the city. That's, the cities were not like they are now with, you know, these freeway loops and, you know, all that kind of thing. But nevertheless, here's what I want you to see. Everyone, practically everyone in the city, the Bible says the multitude in the, of, the, of the city, everyone had been brought to a decision. Not necessarily by Barnabas and Paul personally, but everyone in that, in that city had to make a decision, up or down, for or against the gospel. In other words, people were not left to be neutral. Uh, just because of this circumstance, this uproar, this stirring by the Jews of the Gentiles in verse 2, everyone had to decide whether they were going to be favorable toward the apostles or they were going to be hostile toward the apostles and their message. Now, if, if you would hold your place here and look back at Matthew chapter 10, look at Matthew 10, and this is, um, this is definitely counter. What I'm about to say is counter to... <laughs> the prevailing wisdom of Christianity. But we'll just read it out of the Bible, right? Matthew 10, verse number, verse number 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. <laughs> Didn't we just get done with uh, the, 
the incarnation of Christ where the angel said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Of course, we know we're talking about two different things here, but notice what he says. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth, we, we looked at this verse not too long ago. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. All right, let's look at a, a, a similar passage in Luke 12. Luke 12, verse number 49. Notice what it says. Therefore I also, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Luke 12, 49. For Jesus says, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it, if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am, am I straightened till it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I come, that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. The mother-in-law against the, her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This, Listen, this is not popular teaching about Jesus. This is not the go-to verses when you want to talk about Jesus. Jesus is always presented as, you know, He's a unifier and He's love and peace. And you know what? He does all of those things. But as we see in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas went to preach the Word, that whole city was divided because of that gospel. Before they got there, everybody was in unison. Everybody was unified. Everybody was worshiping the devil. The Jews did their thing. The Gentiles did their thing. And they didn't really, they didn't really cross that, that barrier between them. And the Jews are content to be there. The Gentiles are content to be there. I read one commentator, he says, about this subject of division. I didn't write it down, but I thought it was really good. He said, better, better for those that got saved than the whole city go to hell without uni with unity. It's better to have the vision and some of those people come to Christ and are actually saved and have eternal life than for the whole city to continue floating down the, uh, down the river, off the edge, over the edge of the waterfall and perish in unity. The Lord... That, so what do we see from this? The Lord intentionally <laughs> sends the gospel into families. That's what is that not what we're reading in Luke 12? Fan, mother, daughter, that kind of thing. He sends the gospel into families and the presence of that gospel causes division. You know what? That's not a bad thing. You know why? Because everybody, every person should have to be made to choose whether they receive Christ or reject Christ. But see, in our society where we are now, it seems that everyone wants to be in the middle. 
Everyone wants to be in the middle. No one wants this division. In fact, division is bad. That's the way it's always considered. That's why they don't ever read these verses that Jesus spoke. It's, it's a negative. It's bad. But here's the problem. When you have this kind of lukewarm reception to Christ, like in Revelation chapter 3, it does nobody good. When we give the gospel, it ought to be a point where people have to choose and not be left kind of floating. It ought to be such that you either have to receive or reject Christ. Now, we know if you do not receive Christ, you might, want, you, you might fancy yourself as being in the middle, but you're not. You have, by not receiving Christ, repenting and trusting in Him, like He has commanded, you have rejected Him. But we fancy kind of we're in the middle. I'm okay, you know. That's not what happened in this city. Look at John 7, if you would. This is not uncommon in the ministry of Christ at all. John 7, verse 40. The Bible says, Many of the people, therefore, John 7, verse 40, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that Christ, that, that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? It's funny because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but they don't know that. Look at verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of Him. The moment the gospel comes, people must decide. They must decide. The Lord does that intentionally. Now look back at our, our text in Acts 14. Let me, let me just say this. There are many people that come to church. You might think, well, those people in the, in the comfortable middle who haven't quite decided to put their trust in Christ and haven't quite decided to reject Christ in their own mind, well, those people probably don't attend churches wrong. They attend church. They have a form of religion. They want the morality. They like to hear the nice teachings. But there are many people in churches that have not trusted in Christ, that, that don't want to be brought to a place where they have to face the fact that they are sinners before God condemned and don't want to face what, it, what their life might look like if they put their trust in Christ. They want to be in that healthy middle where they tolerate Christianity, but just not for me. That is rejection. It's rejection under a label of tolerance. That's what it is. Look at verse number 5 in our, our text in Acts 14. The Bible says, And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them. Now stop there, stop, stop. We just studied on Wednesday night the sixth commandment. There, there is murder in the hearts of these religious people. These Jews, these Jews are the, are the, the masterminds. They have actually traveled at their own dime 
from Antioch and Pisidia to Iconium. They're going to follow them to Lystra. They want these men dead. That is Cain and Abel. That is hatred. That is murder in the heart. Nothing less. That is what we talked about on, on Wednesday night, just exactly. And the Bible says they, they tried to stone them, verse 6. They were, uh, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia, and unto the region that lieth round about, and there they preached the gospel. Not, not even Paul. You know, we think of these, the martyrs and, you know, the martyrs of the church and that, that shed their blood for Christ. But they weren't trying to, like, they weren't, like, looking for that. When they got a chance to leave, they left. They realized that they weren't going to be received, and they left. So let's just keep our, keep our uh, estimation of Paul and Barnabas human. I mean, they are human. <laughs> uh, they didn't intentionally rush headlong into danger if they had a choice in the matter. But notice, they, these, uh, these Jews and then the Gentiles want to stone them. I just noticed as I was reading, there is no freedom of religion here. <laughs> There's no freedom of religion. You see, when the multitude of the people in Iconium did not like the teachings of Paul and Barnabas, you know what they did? They sought to silence the teaching by killing them. That is not freedom of religion. There was, and because of that, now follow me, there was no ambiguity as to which side you were on. You were either on the side of the murderers who wanted to silence Paul and Barnabas, or you were on the side of Paul and Barnabas and were friendly to their message. There was no middle, there was no squishy middle, comfortable middle, like I just described a minute ago. You see, hatred and violence in this case forced people to choose a side. Now that's what it's like, for instance, in, in the communist USSR. That's what it's like in Muslim countries. Are there, are there far fewer Christians in Muslim countries or at least professing Christians? Yes, there are. But you know, they pay a price because there is no, there is no middle. There is no toleration. You know, in, in Islam, it is actually against Sharia law. It, you can be, in, in many Muslim countries, you can be put to death from, for converting to Islam, to Christianity. So you don't do that. You, you don't kind of, you, you know, play the field and, you know, Put your toe, dip your toe in the water and kind of see how it is. No, you either trust in Christ with all your heart or you don't. You remain where you are because there is a threat. This is the result of a place that does not have freedom of religion like we have, but that's not where we live. We live in a place where freedom of religion abounds. Now, it might not be to our, our, to our preference in every single way. You know, there's, there's people that are trying to take freedom away in various ways and stuff, but... To a large degree, we have freedom of religion. And so you know what we have? We have this squishy middle. Christianity is tolerated and people don't have to choose. There's no price to pay, really. People, in this case, in where we live, people settle into what might be called an ambivalent and disinterested frame of mind where they don't really have to choose, so they're not going to. They choose not to choose. Now, on the one hand, freedom of religion allows believers to worship God and serve God without any danger. And I thank God for that. 
If we didn't have freedom of religion, it would have been far more difficult to do yesterday what we did in, in uh, witnessing and knocking on people's door. But on the other hand, the same freedom of religion deadens spiritual interest because there's no price. So I, I summarize it like this. In places without freedom of religion, people must choose. And many people, the reality is, in places that are hostile to the gospel, people don't choose Christ because they're afraid. And so the numbers are far less. But when you have, the, when you have far fewer numbers, what do you have in those numbers? You have people who have paid the price. You have people who have have been brought to a point of decision and have chosen to trust in Jesus. They have chosen to follow Him. And so that those that do choose Christ are fully persuaded and are certain. But then also Christians often suffer for their faith. But on the other hand, in places like we live, where freedom of religion is abundant, People don't have to choose. And so many choose not to choose, as I said. Christians do get to live and serve the Lord freely, but they do so without any persecution. And so people with mixed motives, we might call it the mixed multitude, people with untested and often false faith infiltrate the church. It's that squishy middle. And of course, that that existed in the New Testament as well. You see, in our text here in Acts 14, that's not what they had. A decision had to be made. There was a division. Verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being of cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked, the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, now notice that. What a picture. And this is not, this happened in Acts chapter 3, where a man who could not walk was healed by Peter in the same exact fashion. And the response was exactly the same. He jumped up and leapt and walked. And it happened in John, I think it's John chapter 6. Is it John 6? I wrote it down. John 8, I'm sorry. Jesus healed an impotent man by the pool of Bethesda. Very similar case. He didn't touch the man. He He just said, rise up and walk, and the man did. It's a very good illustration in in physical things of a spiritual transformation. As this man couldn't walk, so sinners... And again, we talk about being impotent, the idea of being spiritually impotent or spiritually dead. As a person who is is, uh, without hope, without God in the world, who is, we say, lost, who doesn't have God. Look, Look, why do sinners sin? You know why they sin? Because they're sinners. That is what they do. That is what I did before I knew Christ. I'm no, I'm no better, no different, neither are you. We, it's, it's natural. It's what, it's what sinners love. And so sinners sin. That is, it's like this impotent man. He can't walk. We can't walk uprightly. We're broken. We're, if you, can, if you use the term, handicapped spiritually. But then, verse 9, the gospel came to us. Somebody spoke the gospel to us. And 
the gospel created faith in our heart. You see this man? He had faith to be healed. So this isn't so much Paul and Barnabas. This is, they're just talking about Jesus. And the man is believing that regarding his physical condition. And so Paul says, stand upright. I mean, it's, it's, it's a perfect illustration. The Lord brings the gospel to a, to a person who, is, who, who can't, who doesn't live right, they live dirty. They live in sin. That's, that's the way sinners do. They just live in sin. And the gospel comes to them. They're awakened to it. It generates faith in their heart, the gospel. This is why we have to tell people. And then once that faith comes up, they put their trust in Christ. I put my trust in Christ. And all of a sudden, I was healed. And all of a sudden, that wicked life I used to live, like the man who couldn't walk, he was impotent. Now I can walk. I can live for God. I can walk in the way that God wants me to walk. Of course, walking is a, is a reference and a picture of our life, the way we live, the choices we live. But notice, this man was, did not remain impotent after he had believed. No, he was healed physically, but the picture is, so it is with a believer. This is why when you put your faith in Christ, you say, I have believed in, in, on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why your life ought to be different. Your actual lifestyle should be different than before. It should not be dead like you were impotent previously. Salvation is a miracle. Just like this. It's a miracle of a moment. And from that moment, our life, which was once characterized by wickedness and death, is now characterized by life and the ability to follow the Lord and walk uprightly. Yes, Christians should be different. Yes, they should be different. Verse 11, And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. You, know, you think of the uh, incarnation of Christ, how that Christ came into the world. But this is different. This is different. This is not an incarnation. This is what makes the incarnation of Christ, His advent, so important. He didn't just come down and appear like they assume. Jesus was born. He, he didn't come to just look like us, to our eyes. He became us so that He could die for us. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, that's the Roman equivalent of Zeus, which is the Greek version. And Paul, Mercurius, also called Mercury, the Roman equivalent of Hermes, which was, it says, because he was the chief speaker, because Hermes, or Mercury, was the communicator of the gods, apparently. Verse 13, Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people, which... When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We, are, we also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you. Notice, listen now, listen now. This is St. Paul. This is St. Barnabas, as they're called. There's some like superhuman, super Christian. no. Paul and Barnabas, both of them, you know what they're saying? We are no better than you. These are idolatrous people getting ready to worship a human being. 
I mean, this is raw paganism. And Paul and Barnabas, even though they're children of God, apostles, all the things, they're saying, we are just like you. So listen, the depiction of Paul and Barnabas in modern religion as some sort of halo adorned, you know, super, you know, demigod of some, that is all false. That is not what they said. That is not what they were. They understood they were sinners that God had saved and that was it. You see this attitude they have? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their, in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Notice, they don't bring up the Old Testament Scripture like they often do when they're in the synagogues, like we've read in chapter 13 and chapter 14, the beginning of the chapter. They go straight. These people don't have any reference to the Scriptures of the Old Testament. You know what they're doing? They go straight and they say, and we'll see this later in chapter 17, but he goes straight for God is the Creator. Remember we talked about that when we were talking about the, the Ten Commandments? And the first commandment and the second commandment. God, who is the true God? He is the creator. The one who created heaven and earth and everything in it. This is what they say. You know, Sister Judy Johnson asked me uh, several weeks ago about witnessing to someone in an Eastern religion. I think it was Hinduism. And what are some good ways to start? This is it. Who is God? God is the creator. He is the almighty You see, because all men have a relationship to God as the Creator. Not everybody's been to a church. Not everybody has been part of a religion. But everybody on this planet is a creature of God, someone that God has created. So we can always start there. But what what it tells us in our witnessing when we talk to people, start where they are. Start where they are and go from there. This is exactly what Paul is doing. Look at verse 19. This is the most startling part of this passage. Last thing I want to point out to you. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Here they come again. Chasing the apostles down, trying trying to hurt and hinder their work. Actually trying to kill them. Who persuaded the people? These are the same people that had just tried to do sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Who called, them, who called them Jupiter and Mercurius, who said that they were gods manifest in the flesh. And now it says, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day departed with Barnabas to Derby. You know, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five 25 says this, Paul referring to his sufferings, he says, Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. He says in 2 Timothy 3, 11, he said, Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. 
They thought they had stoned Paul to death. But lastly, what I want you to see is this. What a radical change of mind. I read one commentator, he says this. How hard it is to keep men from from throwing themselves at wickedness. That's the beginning. When they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas, it says, verse 18 says, they scarce restrained the people. In other words, they just barely were able to convince them not to worship them. How hard it is for to restrain or prevent people from doing wickedness. But on the other hand, those same people, how easy it is to lead them to do evil. Listen, this is the human condition. This radical change of mind from one extreme, one bloodthirsty for Paul and Barnabas all the way to, uh, 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 rather, wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas to bloodthirsty, wanting to kill Paul and Barnabas. Within just a short period of time. We don't know the exact time, but it was a brief period of time. You know, Matthew Henry said it like this. If you know your your Bible, he says, Today, Hosanna, tomorrow crucify. That's true. When Jesus was coming into what's called the triumphal entry, you remember they were laying down the palm leaves and and all the people, even the kids were like, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And it would not even be a week later. Those Jews, possibly those same people, were saying crucify him. Why the change? Why the change? You see, what this shows is a a shocking, a shockingly dark view of an unregenerate person. He's prone to do evil and difficult to dissuade from it. And he has no stability in his thought. He swings wildly from extreme to extreme in the pursuit of sin and doesn't see the contradiction. You see this in popular culture all over the place. How that, you know, this month, they're all about this thing. And six months later, they believe and are holding and are preaching something totally different that contradicts. You see, this is a, an insight into mankind that leads to what I want to read to, to close, which is John 2. You know, when, when Psalm 14 says that the Lord look, looks down from heaven to see the children of men, and what he finds is he says, there's none that doeth good. They are all gone out of the way. They're all... I'm, I, corrupted themselves. This is why the Lord says this. John 2 and verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So Jesus did miracles. Everybody's on, his, everybody's on his side, right? Hurrah! Jesus is great. Look at what he's doing. All these miracles. This must be him. Verse 24 says, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. You see that? 
Jesus did not trust men. You know why? Because he knew how fickle they are. You see, this fickleness, spiritual fickleness in man, he throws himself at sin. He reforms himself, wants to make himself better, then throws himself back at sin. This kind of swing, it's a feature. It's a characteristic of human nature. It's a mark of a lost nature. You know what? Even as a believer, with that, it's all wicked flesh, we're, we have a tendency to do that. We'll be, love you, hate you, love you, hate you, love you, hate you. But when, listen, when you get saved and you begin to walk with God, the Lord stabilizes you. He, he makes you steady. Now, we, don't, we, we know none of us have lived up to that. <laughs> but none of us, I mean, anybody who, if you're married, you know that your spouse sometimes goes like this. But there is a certain stability that comes with growth because we live by principle of the Word of God and it, it maintains our values and we don't, we don't go like this all the time. Jesus did not trust man because He knew what was in it, what was in man. And verse 25 says, And He needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Even the people that were believing on Him, He didn't trust them. Okay, you believe me. You know, you got these pictures of these silly movies. Oh, you know, the crowds. Oh, you know. He's like, mm -mm. he withdrew. Because he knew those people at this moment seemed to be saying positive things. But in the next moment, if there was not a true regeneration in that person's heart, they were born anew, right? And were, they had a new man that was created after righteousness and true holiness. If, if that was not present, those people would turn on him in a, on a diamond. You know what they did? That's not theory. They actually did. They received him with palm leaves and shouts of acclamation and in the end, turned on him. You say, I would never do that. Oh, oh, every one of us would. Every one of us would. Put in the right, this is what we have to understand about ourselves. As a sinner, put in the right condition, in the right circumstance, under the right pressure, we are all prone to do wicked things like that. But maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're not, even, you're not saved. The Lord is talking about you. He's describing you. And see, that will come out in your life, in the works that you do. This is why Jesus said, ye must, M-U-S-T, ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. Let's pray.